0: On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson, we are talking about how we are going to get used to living with COVID because apparently it's never going away. At least that's what the experts are telling us. So how do we get back to normal while it is still around? We're going to be talking about an upcoming election. And the governor general being sworn in, the two are not unconnected. We're going to be talking about our national debt and deficits, and the amount the amount of money that we are going to be spending just on servicing the debt over the next fifty years. You will fall off your chair. And then to top it all off, Kim Mitchell drops in unexpectedly for a little surprise visit. Yes, the Kim Mitchell. We'll do that next today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to a Monday here on the Scott Thompson show. A new week, a fresh, clean slate ready for you to do with it what you will, which for many of you hopefully means having a holiday and lying outside in the nice sun and that's what Scott Thompson is doing. That's why I, Scott Radley, am in for Scott Thompson this week. Scott is on vacation and once again, I said this last time I filled in for Scott, Scott Thompson has this. Unbelievably uncanny ability to choose good weeks for vacation, weather-wise. I, I don't know. He should be a weatherman. He really should. Anyway, he is off for the next few days. I am in, and we have a lot of stuff to get to over this week. Well, we'll start with today. First up today, though, I don't want to bring you down on a Monday. I don't want to be the the bringer of bad news or the the creator of ideas that you go oh, but. There's some news that may do that. And it's it's the fact that a number of experts, a lot of experts, it seems now, are saying, you know what? Yeah, we're getting back to some kind of normal with life now, but COVID isn't going away. We're going to have to learn to live with this. Unlike SARS, which seemed to back 20 years ago, roughly, come and then go, COVID is going to linger. So how are we going to get back to a normal life? Or are we? What does this mean? Dr. Kerry Bowman is a bioethicist with the University of Toronto, uh, joins us now. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Happy to do so. Why isn't COVID doing what SARS did, as I say, almost two decades ago and simply, for all intents and purposes, going away?
1: You know, it, it's hard to say. It, it, you know, the short answer is because it's a different virus and it, it seems to be behaving uh, quite differently um, but boy, you know, I, I, I'm at the front of that line in terms of thinking it, it could go away. I, I was I was around for stars. I was, you know, working in the Toronto hospitals. I was exposed to it. I was quarantined. And, you know, for us within the hospitals, it was like a battle. But, you know, after a few months, it was over. We kind of won that one. And, you know, I uh, earlier on in this pandemic, I thought maybe we could do the same thing. But it's simply not going to happen. You know, COVID is now all over the planet Earth. Um, it's also in non-human species, including wild animals, not just domestic and captive, but including some, not not all, but but some wild species. So it's definitely here to stay. And the question now, as you said in your intro, is we now have to figure out how it is we're going to live with this.
0: Well, and and yeah, that's the, I was going to say million dollar question. It's probably more like about the hundred trillion dollar question because really that's the effect on the planet, economies and everything else. How do we then learn just to live with this and to deal with it? What do we have to do? Because I don't think anybody can envision going through the rest of their lives with some of the restrictions and things that have been happening over the last year and a half. They just can't even imagine that. So how do we deal with it? No, and I can't
1: imagine it either. <laughs> it's a very compromised life. So we have to absorb a certain amount of risk. And look, there's a lot of unknown, and I'm just giving my thoughts on this. Everyone's going to have different opinions on 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 this. But, you know, I'm not a virologist, but I'm told by my many colleagues that are virologists that eventually pandemics, they don't remain permanent. Eventually they go away. Um, and, and COVID will, too. It just looks like that, you know, it, it will be a long time. It could mutate into something milder, Wouldn't that be wonderful? Um mm. and you know it could do its thing and it not affect us? we We simply don't know, but look, I, I think the major lockdowns and the real crisis is is coming to an end. And as bleak as it may look, we cannot lose sight of the fact that the vaccines work. They're not bulletproof, they're not one hundred percent, but they work really, really well. And we're in a country, this wasn't true six months ago, but we're in a country that's now on the forefront of vaccination rates. So there's a lot of good news happening for Canadians. The global picture is, is very, very tough. But look, for people that feel I really don't want to reintegrate into the world until I can be guaranteed that I'm completely safe from COVID, um, I don't know what to say. What I would say is all of us as Canadians, we're going to have to just absorb a certain amount of risk. We're going to have to be vaccinated. We're going to have to follow a certain amount of protocols and we're going to have to see what happens.
0: So does uh, now this, this is going to sound really coarse almost, I think what I'm saying, but when you say we have to assume a certain amount of risk, does that imply we're going to have to just accept that there are going to be some cases and there are going to be some deaths as long as it doesn't spread widely. Again, that's just what we have to live with unless we want to live in lockdown world.
1: I, I think that's more or less the size of it. But look, the amount of deaths is really, really falling. Does that mean there'll be no deaths? No, I don't think it does. And and look, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm hypothesizing. It depends where this thing goes. You know, it could get a lot better. I mean, the worst case scenario is the mutations keep coming, meaning the variants, and they get worse. There's no indication that's going to happen, by the way. But that would be the worst. The best is it just gets milder and milder. And, you know, we don't lose any sleep over the flu, or most of us don't anyway. The flu can be a very rough ride, especially for vulnerable people. But um, so so that may be the way it goes. But, you know, this sort of siren, you know, alarming, the all-clear is here, like World War Two, the whole thing's over. Uh, hmm. You know, that is simply not going to happen for a, such a long time uh, that we won't even probably notice when it does. So, um But I do think we'll have a very livable situation. I do think things will likely get a lot better quite quickly. But I think where we really have to be vigilant and we have obligations as well is the global picture is not good. It's much worse. And we've got to deal with that ethically and practically. But, you know, we've got a lot of advantages as Canadians at this point.
0: I am so glad that you raised the three-letter word that I was going to raise because uh, I think this is going to be such an interesting discussion coming up this fall and winter. That's flu, of course. Um, Yeah. Last year, when we all masked and social distanced and stayed at home, the flu basically in Canada like literally almost was eradicated. Like there was no flu in this country last year. (laughs) And I'm wondering if we are now, if if governments and doctors and others are going to look and say... You know what? We should be doing that masking and social. We should be enforcing that kind of thing throughout flu season, because it also, as you say, it kills people. Are we are we walking down a beginning of a path now where it's not just covid that we may have restrictions about because other things we've learned we can maybe stop or cut back, but it'll affect our lifestyle.
1: Yeah, you know, it could, but, you know, in a perfect world, I mean, from a viral perfect world, we'd all stay home and live in a bubble, and then we'd all be very happy and healthy. Well, not not happy, but, but healthy. Well, but, you know, the the big challenge here is we have to decide how what kind of a world we want to live in.
0: Yes, yes. You know,
1: many people would say, and I, I think they say, Somewhat have a point, you know. Canadians are among some of the most cautious people in the world to begin with. Uh, that's getting a lot better with, with a lot of immigration, uh, but you know the traditional Canadian society is very cautious. The Americans sometimes are, are amazed how cautious we are, and and you know if you add this this risk, we got to figure out how we're going to live and what we're willing to put up with. Um, you know, and these are not really medical questions. These these are something quite different. And we're all in different places on, on the level of risk we're willing to live with. Some people take on way too much risk and, and, and are very uncautious. Uh, other people probably too much. And, you know, it, 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 it's a tough one, but we're going to have to figure it out.
0: And again, I go back to the flu. If we go back to any kind of normal this winter, and I assume that'll happen. I don't think we've yeah. killed off the flu. I can very easily see discussions starting to happen from people if we start to have the usual few thousand people a year die of the flu, where all of a sudden, you know, right now we're saying you have to be vaccinated. The flu shot has been a voluntary thing over the last number of years. I'm wondering if we're going to see almost mandatory flu shots or you can't come to work or you can't go in public or whatever else.
1: Well, whether we would tolerate that. Now, your flu point is a good one because i do know there's there's commentators and and people within healthcare that said you know what we've learned here is we have to take major precautions for flu well you know society now needs to weigh in on how far we want to go with that um do we really want to live in a mass world uh, wh- when threats really come down and we have an ongoing threat of maybe i'm going to say this it could not be true maybe low grade covid a- as well as flu how far are we going to go Um, You know, these these are the tough calls. And, you know, the question, too, is we've had public health officials kind of running our lives for about a year and a half now. Do we want that to continue? And I, I say this, I'm not a public health official per se, but, you know, I'm sort of part of that team. Uh, You know, a lot of people have had enough of that. Um, So how far do we want to go with that? We've already got politicians running our lives. Do we really want public health people running Mm. our lives as well? Um, Because, you know, the critics of of many of the public health people said they're not great at seeing past viruses. They're not great at the social fabric. They sometimes don't get the social complexities of what it is they're proposing. That's what the critics would say. So, you know, I'm obviously coming up with no answers here, but I'm, I, you know, we mm. we're really as a society have to figure out a lot of this stuff on our own. Mm.
0: Well, that's right. That's the balance, I guess, between living and staying alive. And, do, you know, do we want, as you said, do we want to be alive and be healthy, but have no life? Or do we want to say, I'll accept that risk that I might get something and, but I want to be able to go out with my friends and go to a restaurant. And, you know, I, if governments or medical people start pushing for the ladder and saying, no, we really, when flu season comes, or if we have another outbreak of COVID, we really have to lock up again. I, I don't know if people now would accept those conditions or if they are saying, I'm done. I've done it. I'm done. I'm taking that risk.
1: No. And, you know, one of the huge advantages we have in Canada is that we have a fair amount of social cohesion on pandemic protocols. And if you look around the world, even in the last week, Australia and and France, now we could say, well, those are extreme people, but they're people and they're part of the public are really pushing back. So, you know, what, what's the breaking point for Canada where people say, I, I, you know, I'm simply not willing to do this and this doesn't measure up with my assessment of risk? Some people already say that. I think we can do it because vaccinations are going well and I think we can do it well and I think it's one of the, the advantages of being Canadian. But, you know, conflict management is also a big part of, of public health, which has really been ignored. We've been really lucky uh, compared to the United States and many countries around the world that that people are are basically we're we're on the same page with this basically not exclusively
0: anecdotally and that's all i can ask what do you think would be the response if governments at this point were to say oh it's time to go into another lockdown do you think people would buy that or do you think people would because we've been through it and we're now getting back into some kind of normal do you think they'd push back
1: I, I think if we had a catastrophic fourth wave, and that was very clear, uh, they might. I think under these conditions, from a viral point of view, they absolutely would not. And I don't know, if e- even if we do have a fourth wave, I simply can't predict whether people are going to willingly say, you know, that's it. Uh, you know, no more gyms, no more restaurants. I don't know if people, how many times we can do that. I don't think we're going to have a fourth wave, but I'm just expressing my opinion. You know, if the vaccinations are going really, really well, we'll have some elements of it, but it could be very, very mild. Um, So we'll see. I mean, that's what I hope, but I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think one of the questions that I've, I've heard a lot of people say this, and I really believe this would become a real issue if they tried to lock people down again or put these restrictions back in, people would say, wait a second, we've got this huge percentage of vaccinations. Are you then essentially acknowledging that vaccinations don't work? Why did we get yeah. them if we can't be out? And, you know, I, I understand the variants and all the rest, but boy, you're, you're creating some questions then that become pretty difficult yeah. to, to work around.
1: No, and those questions matter. So, if you look at the the Canadian protocol for fully vaccinated people, which I am, and a whole lot of people are, probably you too. I don't know, but um, look how long it took to be told what we could actually do safely. Right? It was like, uh, I was fully vaccinated for a long, long time before any kind of protocol came out to say what fully vaccinated how fully vaccinated people could interact with other fully vaccinated people. And it raised the exact question you just said, like, what's the point? Like, if nothing changes, you know, and, and again, they, they were biding their time and they were being cautious and they were factoring in a lot of things. But, you know, even in the States, they've said fully vaccinated people don't need masks. And, and then Fauci just yesterday is saying, well, it's not going that well. Looks like we may have to do masks again. Uh, Americans don't love that. Well, that's not true. Some Americans don't love
0: that. I I don't know that Canadians love that either, quite honestly. I think a lot of people are ready to go to Costco or a restaurant or wherever and take the mask off and are are saying, I'm fine. And again, it becomes a really, we got to run, but it becomes a really difficult issue here about how we achieve normal. If something were to happen again, I'm with you. I, I, well, you're the expert. I'm merely a hopeful optimist that says we're not going to have a fourth wave, but.
1: Well, yeah,
0: no, and I am
1: too. But, you know, my, my main point with all of this is it may not be a political decision and it may not be a public health decision. But the, the decision rests with the public uh, in terms of as we move forward, how much are people willing to tolerate? I mean, this one might be different in which the public will, will kind of vote with their feet as to how much they're willing to tolerate, uh, you know, as numbers come down and what kind of new normal we're willing to live with.
0: Dr. Kerry Bowman, a bioethicist, I can't even say that word, but with the University of Toronto, you know what I'm talking about. He he, (laughs) really appreciate (laughs) the time. Thanks for doing this. Lots of things going on in Ottawa today. We have the swearing in of the new governor general. We have rumors and rumblings as have been going on for some time now of an upcoming election. I want to bring in Michael Tobe. He is a Troy Media syndicated columnist with the, he's a Washington Times contributor. He's a former speechwriter for prime minister, Stephen Harper. He joins us now. Michael, how are you today? Hey, Scott, I'm doing well. How are you? Excellent. Thank you for doing this. Let's start with our new Governor General, Mary Simon, who um, was sworn in today. Really interesting comment that I saw on TV that she made a couple days ago. It was from a news clip that they had used to promote her signing in today as a TV event. Mm -hmm. And she said that her induction was an inspiring moment for all Canadians. Now, that, that may sound a little less humble than Canadians would sometimes word it like. Nonetheless, is this an inspiring moment for all Canadians? Um, It's certainly an inspiring choice. I mean, if
2: you're looking at it from that because she's the first Indigenous person and the first Indigenous woman to have ever held the Governor General's position. So if you're looking at it as something uh, unique, original, groundbreaking, historical, it fits all of the above. I would agree with that. Whether it's inspirational for all Canadians, again, you're, you're painting with a very broad brushstroke, and when you do something like that, it's very, very difficult. And this has nothing to do with Ms. Simon's background, her experience, um, or anything of the sort. It's just that, for example, a lot of Canadians look at the Governor General's position as a ceremonial role, which it actually is, and don't place a lot of great importance on it. Certainly, if you look at it from the traditional or historical role that it has had as the Queen's representative in this country, and the role that Miss Simon will play for various things, including the opening of Parliament and some of her duties as Governor General, where she will meet other dignitaries, etc. Yes, there's obviously something to the role, but a lot of Canadians, for example, probably see Mary Simon elected to the role. They are certainly or are placed in the role. They're probably happy by the fact that. Someone different other than Julie Payette is now currently sitting there, and they're taking a wait-and-see approach like I am to see what happens. But to say it's an inspirational choice, I understand why she would have said it. I can certainly understand why some people would have felt it. But if you're going to say that every Canadian from coast to coast to coast believes that, to be fair, that's not the case.
0: Yeah, I, I think a lot of Canadians might have been more inspired by M- Maggie McNeil winning a gold medal in Tokyo over the last sure. couple, I mean, and again, not to be like inspirational is an interesting word. And the irony, I think, is that the best governors general that we've seen in the last number of decades seem to be the ones who are, for all intents and purposes, the ones who are the most invisible And yet, if she follows that path and follows the lead of those better and best governors general, I wonder how inspirational you can be when you're trying to remain in the background almost.
2: Yeah, exactly. Look, one of the the better governor generals we've had in this country was David Johnson. I'm not saying Mm -hmm. that because of the tie-in to Stephen Harper's government. It's the fact that Mr. Johnson did his role, did it quietly, didn't have any controversy, and finished his term from start to finish in a very positive light. That If Mary Simon does the same thing from start to finish, no matter how long her tenure is, she will be remembered in that same vein, and that's a good thing. You're absolutely right in the sense that governor generals who get too involved in the system, and Julie Payette is not the only one, obviously. Adrian Clarkson, for example, had her own issues while she was governor general. Um, but the ones that tend to be quiet are the ones who tend to be best suited for the role and are a best fit for the role. And we'll see. In time, Scott, we'll know if Mary Simon fits that list as well.
0: Well, and based on everything that I've read about her or heard about her, I mean, I fully expect her to be very dignified in this position, which would be, she kind of has to be, doesn't she? Oh, uh, yeah. And again, not to, after Mikhail Jean and Adrian Clarkson and Julie Payet, I don't think Canadians are eager to be reading about the governor general Because of stuff going on in you know the social pages. I I think they just want someone who goes and quietly goes about the job and doesn't want a scandal.
2: Yeah, exactly. And Mary Simon certainly, in terms of her years of experience in public service, understands this role very well. Like this is a you know, whether, you know, whatever her politics are or aren't, depending on the case may be, she is suitable for this particular position. And that's good because As you pointed out, there have been several choices in, let's say, the last couple of decades where that has not been the case. So if nothing else, Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, is off to a good start with who he chose for the role, that being Mary Simon, as our next governor general, it's now just the question of how Mary Simon performs in the role. And again, not to be a broken record, but if she falls a straight and narrow, avoids controversy and various other pitfalls, and does her job for the next several years, That's good. And that's something, you know, there's not very much I praise Justin Trudeau about. In fact, there's barely any. That will be one of them.
0: I'm sure it's just a coincidence that we finally got around to getting a governor general right around the time we're hearing about the federal election. Since you need a governor general to dissolve parliament to be able to have an election, I'm sure that's just a coincidence. Or or does one plus one equal two in this case? Well, sometimes
2: 1 plus 1 does equal 2, but then on other occasions 1 plus 1 equals 3, as they say. But um, I think in this case it's kind of twofold. Yes, there, there is a bit of a coincidence in terms of the timing. I don't dispute that because we know that we will be in a federal election before long. Some people are suspecting it will be in August. My sense is still that it will be in mid-September somewhere, but regardless of a few weeks, we are getting closer to it. But on the other hand, to be fair, Scott, No matter who the prime minister of the country was, that position, that being the governor general of Canada, that position needs to be filled. And based on the disgraceful way Julie Payette handled things and the, you know, the the less than honorable way she was removed from that role, we needed somebody better in there. So if nothing else, Mary Simon as a jumpstart is way, way ahead of the curve when it comes to Julie Payette's tenure as governor general. But sure, is there a coincidence in the way it was built and how it was designed and the timing? No. I mean, obviously, a lot of it is geared towards the Liberal government's plans to hold an election, which is forthcoming.
0: Let's talk about that election for a few moments here. Uh, We presumably, as you say, are going to be going to the polls, whether it's next month or the month after. And everything that I read, everything I hear about this, it seems that the, the... the reason for this election is so the liberals can win their majority. I, I, I'm not getting the sense that there is some other compelling reason for this. Am I missing something, or is this really about just trying to win a majority?
2: Well, the goal of any government or any political party is to win a majority government in this country. We know that, but yes, the rationale behind this tends to be the it tends to be one man's vision, that being Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to get out of the minority government situation he's currently in and back into a majority. And again, that's one of the rationales or reasons you hold, you know, you're in an election in the first place. You're not in there to, for the, your ambition to be to lead a minority government, because minority governments in the history of this country tend to last, on average, 12 to 18 months, although some can go longer. This one, for example, will go a bit longer. Uh, my old friend and boss, Stephen Harper, were, had a couple of minority governments that went longer than that. So it does happen. Lester Pearson had a minority governments that went longer than that. But by and large, 12 to 18 months is usually the lifespan of a minority government, at least federally. So for that reason, you can understand where someone like Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has a lot of pet issues and pet projects that he wants to put forward. But he recognizes that he doesn't currently have the numbers right now in the House of Commons, and he needs to negotiate and bargain with some of the smaller opposition parties, or at least smaller in terms of the number of seats they have, like the NDP, Greens, etc., to ensure that he gets those little bitty numbers he needs to get his legislation or his policies through. In the same sense, having a majority government in this country, it's just easier to conduct your day-to-day operations. It's more ideal. I mean, any political leader would prefer to have that. So, we can understand why he's doing it, but The rationale of Justin Trudeau holding an election as we're still in COVID-19, still dealing with a global pandemic, and have lots of other issues to deal with, which are more pressing than a federal election that will please the Prime Minister and give him those few extra seats he desires to have a different setup in Ottawa. If that is the, I don't know if it's the only rationale, but if it's the major reason behind it, well, that's the wrong one. I think most Canadians would agree with that.
0: Well, and most of those minority governments eventually fall because the other parties can't absorb or accept the, the bills, the, whatever that they are bringing forward, whatever the government is bringing forward. Here, uh, has there been any liberal bill? that has not made it through, that they have tried to get through. Like nothing has been bogged down. This has not been a government that has not been able to get its its laws passed. The, the other parties have been, well, except for the conservatives, which are in opposition, but they've been very amenable seemingly to working. So once again, you look and you say, this is not a government that has not been able to do anything.
2: No, but in the same sense, this is probably the most left-leaning government of our history and of our lifetimes, for sure. And for that reason, in a House of Commons in Canada, which is largely, has parties largely to the left, including the Liberals, who are more or less far to further to the left now than they've ever been before, plus the New Democrats are to the left, the Greens are to the left, the Bloc Québécois is to the left. When you put all of that around, it's actually not difficult for someone, a left-leaning Prime Minister like Justin Trudeau, to get his left-leaning measures and left-leaning policies and left-leaning bills through Because he knows that even if he has to tinker with some of the impending legislation, and he's had to here and there with certain things, he knows that he will ultimately have the backing of the other left-leaning parties to get it through. Even if it's not in total volume, it might be sort of on single digits and just a few people here and there, he's able to get most of the things that he wants from taxes, the size of government, environmental policy, uh, foreign policy, etc., He's able to get most of that legislation through. And for that reason, yes, he's in a very comfortable situation. But again, unsurprisingly, like most prime ministers who are prime ministers in a minority government situation, they want to get out of it as quickly as possible and get that majority so that they don't need to build alliances, build working relationships, and ensure that their legislation can just get through as is. However, no matter what, whether Justin Trudeau wins another majority government in the next federal election, another minority government, or
1: loses, no
2: matter who is in charge, you're still going to have a conservative-dominated Senate in Canada. And for that reason, if you're starting to put in legislation that can, that many Tory senators find to be controversial, it doesn't matter how much Justin Trudeau tries to sell it, it doesn't much matter how much Canadians themselves like the policies, it will be blocked at some stage and sent back for review and more research and more writing until you actually get something that, if, if nothing else for Tory Sanders seems plausible.
0: If the idea is that this election is largely so the Liberals can try and win a majority government, and for a long time it looked like that was lining up, that it was going to be maybe even an easy run, there's a new Ipsos poll out that came out a couple days ago. That says that the Liberals' lead has shrunk. Now we're still a ways from the election, whenever that is. Yeah. But it's very much, according to this new poll, it's very much in doubt that a majority government is a sure thing. If 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 the prime minister was to look at those numbers and believe them, if his advisor said those, you know, I we we see those same numbers. Any chance that the liberals say we're not going to hold the election then until we are in a position where we're sure we're going to win the majority? You know, it's interesting. The federal liberals have won every single election
2: poll, or shall we say, a a pre-election poll that's been held since last September 25th, except one. And in that one poll they lost, they lost it to Aaron O'Toole and the Tories by 0.1%. So basically what they've had is they've had a consistent ride where they have been leading in every single opinion poll since last September. Now, even if you take opinion polls with a grain of salt, and you'd be wise to, that's obviously something that would give any government enough confidence to pull the trigger, you know, and and let the writ drop and have another election to get the goals and, and get the achievements that they want to actually accomplish. At the same time, all the numbers that the Liberals have been showing since last September, except for a few polls here and there, show them sorted of in the neighborhood of the mid-30s, 33, 34, 35, sometimes on the cusp of 36, 37 percent. Again, they've been a little higher, they've been a little lower, but around there. All those numbers don't necessarily equate to a majority government. The magic number traditionally in Canada for a majority government, depending on the way Votes break down in the seat impact is 37 to 38 percent in an election poll. The Liberals are sometimes on the cusp of it. They're occasionally hitting it, but more often than not, they're below it, Scott. And for that reason, you know, you would think that most governments in that, in, in that nature would actually say to themselves, everything seems comfortable. I'm in a firm position. I'm not going to fall anytime soon. The opposition parties don't want to bring me down. I could keep this going for a few more months and maybe then allow things with COVID-19 and the vaccination rollout to continue, get the numbers of fully vaccinated Canadians higher, and then maybe look at it next year. However, I think right now, and I think most political pundits, including me, are looking at the same thing. We all believe that basically the Liberals are not only confident in their position, that they're ultra-confident, that they can... Get that one to two to three percent extra on the campaign hustings, push it over the top, and get the majority government. I think that's what they're counting on. However, elections matter. You know, one, you know, one day in election is a lifetime. To paraphrase a little bit, and if mistakes occur, which they will, if pitfalls happen, which undoubtedly they will, and if controversies pop up, which they always do, then this liberal government. It's their overconfidence that they can get that extra two to three percent around the country and build into majority could be their undoing in certain ways. Not that they'll necessarily lose the, the next election, whenever that's called, in the next little while, but they could be in the same exact situation with the same sort of makeup in Parliament. You know, maybe the Conservatives will have a few more seats, a few less seats, if you believe polls right now. The NDP could be a little bit higher or around the same as they are. The Greens, God knows where they'll be, but they only have two seats in Parliament right now. The Bloc Québécois seems to be consistent. Maybe Maxime Bernier can lock himself back into his riding a boat and get his seat back. But regardless, if it all stays the same or if the polls, as they currently are showing right now, if that's how voter turnout and the vote, actual vote, actually goes in the next election... We're looking at a near-carbon copy of the current parliament. And, and then, then a what? lot of Canadians are going to be saying to themselves, what was the point of this?
0: And that, that was the question I was going to ask. Is then, so let's say that happens. we got to run here, but let's say sure. that happens. Is there a backlash, or do people just go to sleep and go, okay, well, you know what? That was fun. Let's uh, hope we don't do that again for a few more years.
2: Well, look, in fairness, I, you, you would think there had been a backlash against this government several times over the past six years, yet... They're still in power. Three instances of the blackface of a prime minister, is, and the man is still in power and would win an election today based on the way opinion polling is showing. It just shows that Canadians are a very forgiving lot. So the question is, if we go through all this and we have a near-carbon copy of the next parliament after all is said and done, and the amount of money, which is in you know many millions of dollars that we have to spend to run an election— Will Canadians then hold something against Justin Trudeau for having wasted our time and just wasted effort to have virtually the same thing all over again? You'd think so. But on the other hand, as I said before, you'd think that something would have changed by now. And other than going from a majority to
0: a minority government, nothing much has. Michael Tobe, always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time today. My pleasure, Scott. Have a good day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You might want to grab a stiff drink and a comfortable chair to sit in when we talk about this next segment, because the numbers that we're going to be talking about are staggering. According to the parliamentary budget officer, which is it provides independent financial analysis to our federal government at the current pace that our federal government is spending money. The federal budget will not be balanced until 2070, 2070, almost 50 years from now. And by the time we get there, and this is where it gets just totally unbelievable. By the time we get to 2070, according to these numbers, we will, Canadian taxpayers will have spent $3.8 trillion on interest payments alone. Just $3.8 trillion on no projects, no resources, no infrastructure, just to pay the money we owe on interest on our debt. Now, I I don't know what a trillion dollars is, really. I mean, I, I know how to draw a trillion, but I don't know. I mean, what is a trillion? Well, I had to look this up. And one example that someone gave is a stack. We don't use dollar bills in this country anymore but let's say we did for a second, a stack of $1 billion bills would be 67.9 miles high. A trillion dollar bills piled up would be 67,866 miles into space. That sounds unfathomably, unbelievably difficult to imagine. You get the point. It's a just a staggering amount of money, what a trillion is. And we're talking, we're going to waste $3.8 trillion just to pay the interest. I want to bring in Franco Torosano, who's the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Franco, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it.
3: Hey, Scott. Well, thanks so much for having me on today.
0: I as, as I look at this and I try to wrap my head around $3.8 trillion, all I can think is that's an astonishing amount of money to flush down the toilet.
3: Well, yeah, it absolutely is. And that really puts uh, a real emphasis on why these numbers are so mind-boggling, right? Because those interest payments, it's really no bang for our money, right? That's $3.8 trillion if the government keeps going down the same course that, that can't go to health care, it can't go to fixing roads, it's not going back into our pockets to help us put food on the table. All of that money would be going to the bond fund managers just to serve the government debt. And it really underscores why it's so important for our federal politicians or members of parliament in Ottawa to really start taking deficits serious and to have a plan to rein in all of this deficit spending that we see.
0: I just don't I just don't see how it's sustainable. I mean, we can probably pay it. We can probably raise taxes and do whatever else. So, sustainable that way, we can probably make the payments, but 13.8 trillion dollars as you say not going into hospitals or not going into roads or, you know, these are things that we're going to need to fix at some point. And that's money that's not available to us. It's I, I just don't see how we continue to do it.
3: Well, $3.8 trillion in interest payments until 2070, if, if the status quo continues when we eventually balance the budget, right? And, and so the first thing I have to, to, to point out is that these are projections. If government, if our politicians continue to deficit spend the way they are, but there is nothing stopping politicians in reality from doing a better job in this, right? Actually reining in the spending. The only thing, that could stop politicians is just a lack of spine and a lack of political will. Um, But one thing that we have to point out is we have to remember that all of this debt, um, it has to get paid back one way or another, right? This money is not going to fall from the sky. It has to come from taxpayers' pockets one way or another if these politicians don't rein in spending. And And so when we hear the Trudeau government, because we have been hearing the the liberal government make these huge spending announcements as of late i think the important question for for canadians to be asking is well how are you going to pay for all of that right we already have massive deficits the pbo says that if things don't change deficits are going to continue debt is going to pile up so we need to be asking our politicians oh yeah you want to spend all that money well how are you going to pay for it
0: see i'll disagree with one thing you just said uh which is when you say this debt has to be paid back eventually does it because i think that the bond managers and other people who are happily accepting these trillions of dollars in interest payments would be quite thrilled if we never paid it back and just kept paying interest
3: well then we're going to keep losing more and more money but eventually- of course but eventually, the tough decisions will be forced on us. And let me just point back to the 1990s and the, and the late 1980s. Well, in the late 1980s, we had politicians, both provincially and federally, that kept kicking the can down the road, right? Similar to what we see today. They didn't want to make the tough decisions. They thought that they could just spend, 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 borrow, borrow, borrow. Eventually, the bond fund managers forced Very tough decisions on the provinces, on the federal government. We remember the tough decisions that had to be made by the Liberal government at the time under Paul Martin as finance minister, but also look at the provinces. They were forced to make even tougher decisions. Um, And let's look at the the province of Saskatchewan. It had to close down more than 50 hospitals in its province because it had no choice. Because it kept kicking the can down the road until it got into such a state where it had no choice and it had to make the tough decision. So either we make tough decisions now or eventually we're going to have to make tough decisions, even tougher decisions down the road when borrowing costs just get completely out of hand.
0: And I agree with everything you just said. The 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 trick here, the difficult part is By and large, the politicians that are making these decisions today are going to be so far long gone by the time that this really becomes a massive problem that it's not really their problem. There's no penalty to them. There's no cost to them to be able to continue to do this to hold on to power.
3: Yeah, and they're spending other people's money. Right, they're not spending their own money. I mean, uh, of course, you're going to be more frivolous when you're spending your friend's money or other people's money than when you're spending your money. And really, there's there's two ways that that we have to go about fixing this. And, and the first one is that we have to understand that there is no silver bullet. It, it really is going to take pressure from Canadians, from taxpayers. To push our politicians to say, hey, we can't afford all this. This isn't sustainable. We don't have tens of thousands of dollars lying around to be paying for your credit card bills. So that is the most important thing. We need, uh, like Canadians, the public uh, to raise awareness of this and to push politicians to spend more sustainably. The second thing, and something that we've pushed uh, for legislation, is, is types of balanced budget legislation. We we have seen that in the provinces that did work well in a province such as Alberta, where you actually limit uh, the amount that politicians can borrow. So I would say between those two things, those would both be steps in the right direction, but we definitely have to hold our politicians' feet to the fire before uh, these crazy debt interest payments really take a bite out of taxpayers' budget.
0: Okay, and where is the evidence that Canadians are going to do that? Because anytime any government tries to cut something, they get criticized, you're going to kill people, people are going to die. And any time a government comes out and says, we're going to spend billions, and I'm not talking just federally, I mean, provincially or wherever else, uh, that's seen as a good thing. That's a compassionate thing. That's So There's no, to me, there's no evidence that Canadians are pushing to have these cutbacks or these belt tightenings done.
3: Well, we're all push back just a little bit on that is, 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 you know, one thing that I hear from broad sections of, of Canadians, uh, all demographics, all regions of Canada is I hear people are worried about the cost of living. That is one thing that I hear uh, constantly, or people are worried about the cost of living. And one of the major influences on cost of living is taxation, right? Like, like, even if we're just talking about driving from home to work to pick up the kids and stuff like that, I mean, carbon taxes, gas taxes, thing like, things like that make up a huge portion uh, of our cost of living. Um, well, if these politicians continue to spend, they're going to have to raise taxes. And I think that's when many Canadians are going to be pushing back, is because the cost of living will increase if our politicians don't rein in this spending.
0: And yet we're seeing, I mean, just here in Hamilton over the last number of days, we've had a massive announcement about public housing. We've had a massive announcement about public transit, both important issues. Um however very costly and and ironically and I'm sure I'm not it's not really ironically uh, these announcements coming shortly before we're expecting an announcement on a federal election I'm sure that's just a coincidence that these these big <laughs> yeah. ticket items all over the place are being dropped but like there's no sign of any slowing down on the spending
3: yeah yeah I know that I'm, I'm in Ottawa right now and that's the that's the rumor that's what everyone's talking about is is when are we going to hear about the next federal election. Uh, Everyone thinks it's going to be sometime this fall. But I really do think one of the issues in this election, because I hear so many people all across Canada who are worried about it, cost of living, well, that's why we have to be asking, how are you going to pay for all of this spending? Because eventually there is going to be time. We are going to have to pay the piper and we can't continue to go down this road. I mean, 50 years of deficit spending is really unacceptable when you think of trillions of dollars uh, that will be lost to the bond fund managers to, to, to pay for all of the interest charges alone. Um, but, but, but essentially, I, I do think that the cost of living is, is, is such a big factor that Canadians are worried about. And I do think that will take center stage in the election. Now, one thing I have to, you know, just bring up one more time when we hear all of this money being spent, all these politicians making these huge announcements, we have to always be wondering and asking and pushing our politicians to answer this straightforward question. The government is broke. So how are you going to pay for it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. uh, Look, I, I I agree a hundred percent with that, uh, but there's never an answer. And we don't seem to have enough people clearly pushing back and saying, well, then why are you continuing to spend? Because we seem, we love being, having shiny baubles dangled in front of our face and and you know i totally side issue here i would love to see a law proposed in this country that says provincially and federally no spending no new spending can be done or promised in the six months leading up to an election to stop oh. people to stop governments from buying us with our own money that, that would never get passed by any government and every government of every political stripe does it. it's not one or the other i would love to see a law like that come into effect
3: well, you know what? They're not even bribing us, bribing us with our own money anymore.
0: They're so bribing our grandkids. us
3: with our kids' money and our grandkids' money. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I would love to see a law like that put into place, too, along with a law with balanced budget legislation, right? If, if, you're, if you have a huge deficit, well, there has to be a law passed where within, you know, three, four, five years, you have to balance the budget. Here's the targets that you have to meet. And if you don't meet those targets, then MLA's ministers, they should, they should have to take pay cuts for not making their targets, right? Uh, In the Mm. private sector, outside of government, when we don't do our job well, we get punished for it, right? Um, And that should be the same thing within government. However, at the federal level, at least, we've seen our members of parliament pocket pay raises year after year after year. And I think this is going to land like a bombshell to your listeners, but during COVID-19, we have seen our members of parliament in Ottawa pocket two pay raises. While so many in the private sector have struggled, taken pay cuts, lost their jobs, so many small businesses lost their business, and yet we've seen our members of Parliament pocket two pay raises.
0: I would love to see, and again, uh, you know, I'm dreaming in Technicolor. I understand that. I would love to see our provincial and federal governments operate on the same financial regulations that the Municipal Act requires municipalities to, which is you cannot operate on an operating deficit. You cannot have an operating deficit. So if you want to spend more money, if you want to go out and suddenly blow your brains out and start throwing billions of dollars around, you can do that. But immediately you have to go to the taxpayers and say, uh, yeah, your taxes are going to go up by 15% to do this. Now, you'll get the stuff you say you want, but you're going to pay for it right away. And then, then it's not just passing the buck down to future generations. Then it's really asking the people, what are you willing to pay for? I think that would be a magnificent way to do this. It'll, again, never will happen. But I, I look at that and I go, why wouldn't we do that? To say, if you want it, pay for it now.
3: Well, that would that would definitely be a huge step in the right direction, right? And, and it would definitely bring forward more intergenerational fairness. But another thing that that would do is actually force politicians to prioritize. Wouldn't that be nice, right? Us households, uh, businesses have to prioritize all the time, right? What is the most important thing that we need to spend on? And, and what isn't super important? Well, sometimes we have to cut it out, especially during tough times. Well, right now, it seems like politicians have completely been lost from reality of, of prioritization where you just see politicians spend, spend, spend. But at least if there was that balanced budget legislation, uh, politicians, if they wanted to increase spending somewhere, they may have to reduce spending in other areas of their budget because they know that their citizens would not be able to afford higher taxes. Now, the one thing as I would say is never say never. We, we have seen this before in Canada. We've seen this brought in with success. Uh, a part of this Actually, we still see in Alberta, which is under the Taxpayer Protection Act out there, where they have to go to a referendum before they would even be able to impose a sales tax elsewhere. We also see in Colorado, I think, is the best example of where this has worked over the years, where if politicians want to raise revenue over and above inflation plus population growth, they have to also go to a referendum to the people. So we have seen these types of things work out in the past, and I would say that that would be a very very big step in the right direction.
0: I'm wondering if the the fact that we live in a time when people appear anyway, like the average person appears very comfortable with debt. Uh, you know, if you want to buy a house these days, you are going to basically go into so much debt you can't even imagine. Uh, we're comfortable with the idea of credit card debt and mortgage debt and other debt. If that translates into why we seem so comfortable, a lot of people anyway, with the idea of government debt.
3: Well, that's that's a good question. But I, but I would say we're susceptible, right? We're, we're, we're very susceptible to interest rate spikes or if we stumble into another economic downturn. So one thing I want to touch on with this PBO data, which fits into this part of the conversation is, you know, we won't balance the budget until 2070 under the status quo, but we would still have trillions of dollars of debt to pay off after you balance the budget. And the PBO says that even after we balance the budget, it would take at least another few decades to finally pay off the debt. But here's the scary part. All of this has been very alarming, but here's the truly scary part. The PBO assumes interest rates around 2.84%, which is relatively low in the grand scheme of things. It also assumes a steady upward climb in terms of economic growth. So what happens if interest rates spike? What happens if Canada gets into another economic downturn? You know, will we ever see a debt-free Canada if that happens under the status quo? So I think that is what is super alarming here.
0: Yeah, and if the day ever comes that the the amount we have to pay in interest starts to gouge into the things that we want to pay for you've got two choices you cut which we know no politician likes to cut or you increase taxes either way does not sound very appetizing for the average Canadian
3: well yeah and and I think that's really underscores the whole point where it's so important for politicians to start taking these deficits seriously now before we just get into such a bad place where very tough decisions are forced on. You know, I I have to go back to the Saskatchewan analysis where in the early to mid-90s, they were forced to close down more than 50 hospitals in that province because they kept kicking the debt can down the road. And really, the, the analogy that always strikes to me is, Well, when is the best time to put out a fire? The best time to put out a fire is before it spreads. Well, the best time to address our debt problems is before it spreads and becomes very, very bad.
0: Franco Turrizano, the Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this today.
3: Hey, well, thank you so much for having me on.
0: You know, I, I know that people talk about this all the time, at debt, and they go, come on, you know, you, you we're going to have debt. You have a debt to buy your house. You have a debt to buy a new car. You do. That's all true. And I understand that governments are going to have debt. I get that. I'm not naive. I'm not stupid. I understand that governments are going to sometimes run deficits and and will have debt. The issue here that we're talking about, if you're saying, look, why are you all over them for having debt? It's not the debt per se. As I said a moment ago, you don't really have to pay back the debt. It's the fact that we're taking trillions over the next number of years, trillions of dollars just to service the debt. When you buy a house, one of the things you're trying to do as fast as possible is pay against the principal so your uh, interest payments go down. Because when you first buy a house and you first have a mortgage, the largest part of your mortgage payment is interest. The faster you can get the principal down, the less you pay in interest, which is just wasted money. That's what we're paying here. That's why this is so upsetting and so concerning. And by the way, again, it's the parliamentary budget officer. It's an independent organization. This is neither conservative nor liberal nor NDP. It's an independent group pointing to these numbers. If we continue on the path, we are flushing trillions of your dollars down the toilet. For what? For what? Money that can't go to hospitals, can't go to roads, can't go to programs. Down the toilet. Makes no sense. And yet nobody seems, nobody seems really interested. At least I don't see too many people interested in screaming from the mountaintops. Not too many saying we have to deal with this now. We'll deal with it later. It's okay. Kim Mitchell is the voice of Canadian summers, apparently. Him and maybe Gordon Lightfoot. I don't know. Have the two of them ever been mentioned in the same sentence? I'm not sure. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson this week on the Scott Thompson show. And yeah, Kim Mitchell, the great Canadian songwriter, rocker. He uh, is going into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. That was just announced. If you've never heard of the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, because it's different from the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, it's okay. I want to talk about it a little bit because it's a really cool idea because it's not just songwriters that can go into this. Uh, Songs can be inducted too which is a neat idea because I've always thought, you know, sometimes you can have a great song, one hit wonder. It's a fantastic song, but the songwriter, you know, doesn't isn't worthy of a hall of fame, but maybe the song is. I love the idea. I want to bring in Eric Alper. He is a music expert, a commentator, a publicist. He does all kinds of stuff in the world of music. Eric, how are you today? Hey, Scott, what's going on? Good to talk to you. So how, um, how would you distinguish, and by the way, happy to talk to you as well. Uh, how would you distinguish... <laughs> When you're talking about a Hall of Famer between a performer and a songwriter, are are the two automatically intertwined, or can you see a need for a special songwriter Hall of Fame?
4: Yeah, kind of. You know, in a country like Canada, where we, I, you know, I definitely punch well above our weight when it comes to the songwriter. There's there's songwriters that are in the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, say like Eddie Schwartz who wrote Pat Benatar's Hit Me With Your Best Shot, that there might not be a place for him in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame if that was the only thing that he ever wrote. Um, Men Without Hats, for instance, are in uh, for the safety dance in the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame because that song is just an absolute drop-dead, stone-cold classic. But maybe Men Without Hats needs to wait a little bit longer to get into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame Um because there are just other people that might have been around longer that had bigger hits for a longer period of time. But there are people, of course, like Buffy St. Marie or Stan Rogers or Andy Kim that are that have been in the, the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame for the songs that they wrote, but also as artists and performers um, for developing their career over the last, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years.
0: I can't tell when I look through and, and I didn't know who was or wasn't in the Canadian songwriters hall of fame until I started looking when we were talking about Kim today. And I started looking through, this is either the most exclusive hall of fame in Canada, or it's a hall of fame that's missing something. And I'm not sure what, cause I started going through no Alanis Morissette in this, no Shania Twain, no Katie Lang, no tragically hip, no David Wilcox. It's like, is this, is this just the most exclusive club in the world?
4: It's really difficult because they only do one or two songs on both the French side and the English side a year. And when you do that, there's going to be a lot of songs that are in the the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame that that get left out. Um, The Junos have that problem as well with the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, where they're like so a little bit behind when it comes to the people that should be already inducted from the 1950s and 60s and 70s, and they need to play catch-up too. So, you know, look, nobody, either of those two places will never take my advice and and put in 20 to 25 (laughs) at one time. So what do I know?
0: Well, yeah, because as I say, I was going through the, the list of the people who are in the canadian songwriters hall of fame and i, I kept looking for brian adams i thought okay maybe i'm skipping over maybe they just forgot it. and then like just one example but then i see there's a group called harmonium which i'm guessing that not one person listening right now could sing me a song by the prog rock quebec group harmonium from the 1970s nonetheless they are there you know so yeah. okay they, they, you,
4: you know harmonium uh, how do you describe them you, you know what I have somebody that actually might be able to help out with that. Um, Kim, Kim Mitchell, are you there?
0: Yeah, Eric, how are you doing? Hi, <laughs> Scott.
4: Hi,
5: Scott. Kim
0: Mitchell, yeah. holy cow. Yeah. Hey, Eric, how, how did you pull this off? Way to go. Yeah, Kim, thanks for joining us. This is a nice surprise. Um, Congratulations.
5: Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Actually, you were, you were mentioning that uh, I was going to be inducted into the Canadian Songwriter Hall of Fame. Uh, that has already happened, and they okay. inducted my whole body of work, so... Um, whether I'm supposed to be there, I'm surprised more than anyone. As a matter of fact, I I was, when they announced it, I'm like, are you sure you have the right guy? And then as soon as they did announce it, the first person I heard of, heard from was Miles Goodwin of April Wine. And he, and apparently they're not in there. I don't know. But, but he said, all he said was, what's a guy got to do? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I'm not surprised at all, Kim. In fact, I'm more surprised you weren't in before, and I'm more surprised that you're not in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, if I've got that right, because I don't know how that's even possible.
5: Um, well, that's very nice of you to say. I, um, it's it, it was very touching to hear that I was going to be inducted into the Songwriting Hall of Fame, and then when it actually happened, uh, it was even more touching. So, um, geez, I... You know, you're just a guitar player writing songs. I started, you know, dare I say, 49 years ago and doing that on a Greek island. And uh, you just have your head down writing these tunes and you look up and you go, okay, there's uh, some gold records. There's some platinum albums. You go, okay, things are going okay. You back down and you're performing and next thing you know, you're getting this award, which to me, I mean, you see gold records and platinum albums coming. You can kind of sense you might get a June award, but this one blindsided me. So, you know, some may think that I deserve to be there. I'm not so sure, but, but thank you anyway. Uh,
0: t- you got to tell the story. Uh, w- tell me the Greek Island story. How, do, how you got started doing this. Where were you? What were you doing when you became a music writer in, in the Greek Islands?
5: Sure, sure. Absolutely. I was going to go back to school at 18. I had quit school at 17 and moved to Toronto from Sarnia, Ontario. Um, at 18, I was going to go back to school and, and a buddy of mine called me and went, do you want to join a show band? And I'm like, what's a show band? And he said, well, we we play nightclubs and we play, you know, six, seven days a week. And we play bars. And so it was a a guy and a girl and us behind uh, this. And, and he was like a, he was like a Greek Tom Jones. So one day he goes, (laughs) my parents, my, we didn't tell him that he wasn't Tom Jones. Like (laughs) he, he just, but he was really good at it. And, and he said, my parents are building a nightclub on the Isle of Rhodes in Greece. Do you guys want to come over and play? And I'm like, yeah, sure, let's go. So we ended up over there in Greece. My bud, Pai Dubois, who ended up writing a lot of Max Webster stuff and some of my solo, solo stuff, was going to tour uh, through Europe. And part, part of one of his stops was going to be Turkey and Greece. And this was all done through letters because there's no internet or cell phones. And so he showed up and, and he starts pulling these pieces of paper out of, out of his knapsack. I'm like, what is this? He goes, oh, I write, I write, I kind of write poetry. And says, so I thought I'd do some writing while I'm out here. And I looked at one song and it, I grabbed the lyric and we wrote our first tune right there.
0: So do you, do you consider yourself, cause you're both, do you consider yourself first a songwriter or first A performer. A performer.
5: Yeah. Yeah. I've always, always, cause it started as that. I, I, when I first started playing in bands at 13, 14 years old, I was just playing other people's music and I was a bass player at first and then a guitar player. And then, you I was in a band when we moved to Toronto at 17 um, we were playing our own stuff, but I still, it wasn't my stuff. We were in a band and uh, you know, it was uh, it wasn't until after I had been to Greece that I came back and Pi and I wrote the first Max Webster album.
0: And I'm guessing, too, there's not quite the same adrenaline rush writing a song as there is being on a stage and having people singing it back to you.
5: Oh, oh, it's an amazing journey, actually. It's a completely different experience. Um, I love the songwriting experience, but you are totally correct. Two different things. You're on stage, there's this adrenaline going, you're, you're transmitting an energy on stage, that energy, you're trying to... You know, shoot out into the audience, and they pick up on it, and it just becomes this beautiful experience—the the live show. Songwriting is more personal. You are—you are by yourself. There's nobody judging you at that point. You're—you're you're like a, to, a good example of it is. I was a rock guitar player, and here I was writing a country song called "Easy to Tame," and I and I hesitated at first. I was like, "I should be writing this. This isn't me." But then it's like, "No, I'm I'm the only one here right now. Like, go ahead and write it." And I say that to songwriters. Whatever genre you're in, just do it a lot. Do it a lot and do it often because it's it's about quantity, not quality. Your, Your music will develop sooner or later.
0: We are talking about Kim Mitchell going into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. So let me ask you this. I'm always fascinated by how songs come to be and everyone has a different method. Are are you a guy who wakes up in the morning with a tune in his head and all it's just refining it? Or are you a grinder who sits there and works at something and works and works and finally something emerges at the end?
5: Good question. Things for me, uh, Scotty, have always just come to me. Um, All of a sudden you get an idea and that can be any time. In the morning, it could be late at night. In the middle of the night, it can be driving somewhere, it can be after a show, it can be sitting in a hotel room, anywhere, just all of a sudden. I always look at it, I think it was Bob Dylan or, or maybe it was Neil Young, I'm not sure one of the two say they, they describe it as, you know, all these ideas are floating around in the universe up there, and all of a sudden they pick a musician, and we're just, we kind of become the song's roadie. Like, it's like the song goes, here's your idea, finish me, write, write me, and uh, it's, it's a cool experience.
0: But back in the day, and, and again, I mean, a lot of your early work in the in the 80s, there was not, you know, we didn't have cell phones to suddenly hit record while you're driving in your car or something. You're driving along and a tune pops in your head. Do you then just keep humming that tune until you can get a chance to pull over and record it somehow so you don't forget? <laughs> or what happens? You send
5: a carrier, pigeon, whatever. You, whatever. Um, yeah. It, well, as as long as I've been doing it, there were like little tape recorders you could talk into. Um, There's always something that you could you could hum into, which I would carry. Um, And you're right. Sometimes it would be I didn't have that. and I would would hum and hum and and keep doing it in my head till I came home and then I ran in the house or apartment, grab a guitar (laughs) and at least get the melody down.
0: Do do you know when you're writing something that it's going to be a hit because you've had a bunch of hits and you've had a bunch of songs that weren't necessarily hits. Can you tell when you're doing them which ones are going to click?
5: Nobody ever knows. I, I don't believe anybody knows. I think, and and I think looking at writing hits is the big mistake. I I think, I, you know, and I know it happens. I know there's writing teams, there's formulas, but for me, it's always just been, I'm writing a song. I want to I want to get this song to where I love it, and beyond that, I have no control what's going to happen to it after. You know, Rock and Roll Duty was written in 20 minutes. Patio Lanterns was an absolute pain to get recorded. And I wanted the song off the record, but I didn't. But so I don't, you know, never really know. Uh, Greg Wells, who produced my album, he did Apologize by One Republic. I mean, he's done, he's done a lot of stuff that he told me. He said, the band didn't want that song on the record. The label didn't want it. And he said, I listened to it. He said, come on, like, like, let's just give it a try. Like, and he said, no, it's a terrible song. And look what happened.
0: I was going to play something for Eric I didn't know Kim was coming on today So I was going to play something for Eric I want to play it for you It's kind of a funny thing It's about 30 seconds here I want you to take a listen to this, Kim Because I'll I'll follow up with a question after this But this was on social media for a while Take a listen
3: Here's how to make an ACDC track in 30 seconds First you need drums Then you need bass Then you need guitar All you need to know are three chords A, D, and G Put them together in any order And do your best impression of
0: Marge Simpson. What's that?
1: Look out! Dog on the road! What's that? Look out! Dog on the road!
0: Dog on the road! Okay, so that's that's pretty hilarious. These guys have figured out how to do ACDC in 30 seconds. There's definitely an ACDC sound that works, but there's also a Kim Mitchell sound. So... When people hear a song on the radio, they can tell, even if they've not necessarily heard it, they can usually tell it's Kim Mitchell. What, what's the what's the secret ingredient to a Kim Mitchell song that makes it that sound?
5: That's an amazing question that I probably can't answer. Um, because, <laughs> well, I can't because it's like looking in the mirror and going, okay, describe yourself. I don't know. All I know is growing up, um, I loved Guitar players and music that you recognized within the first three seconds of them playing. Um, you know, who knows what my journey has been to make me sound the way I sound. I took lessons. I think that that has a bit of a, uh, a, a thing about w- my sound. I think the fact that I picked up Peter forget, uh, great singer who sings all we are. I think that has been part of it. It's, it's a combination of a lot of things that, that. Has always been a moving target, if that makes any sense. Maybe Eric can answer it better because I mean, Eric knows way more about music than both you and I put together,
4: Scotty.
0: So. That's true. That is true. Eric, what do you think? Is there a is there a secret to the Kim Mitchell sound?
4: Um, you know what? I don't know if there is, but I will tell you something though. I remember I I was too young for the Max Webster stuff, um, so I got into him when he was like selling out Kingswood in Toronto with Go For A Soda. And, you know, when you go back to his hits, you realize that they're all rock and roll, they're all upbeat. And then he came out with All We Are. And that was it. I think if he didn't do anything after that, that was the song that I think solidified a brand new generation of people who understood that Kim Mitchell was a songwriter and that he was able to make his choruses double choruses and his verses be choruses as well. It was remarkable. I mean, look, the easy answer would have been to give me the ACDC one, because it would have been like, look, if it's a ballad, it's not an ACDC song. But with (laughs) Kim Mitchell, I think you can go all over the place. But I think it's just that classic songwriting that you know you're going to get a really great song out of it it's yeah, a good
5: point, Eric. you know you know who taught me about songwriting because I knew nothing about it in Max Webster. And then one day Rick Emmett sat me down and he goes, a triumph yeah. Do you do you, do you know do you know about B verses and bridges and the function? and do you know about this part of a song? and do you know about secondary information and counterpoint? I'm like, what are you talking about and <laughs> And he's and he talked to me about this for while. It. it was probably the best music songwriting lesson i I had ever had. So I sort of learned a lot right then too. So you, uh, there really are no rules. All rules are meant to be broken, but who knows why we do what we do and why we sound like we sound.
0: We, we only have a few seconds left here, but uh, Kim, like, again, I go back and I, I've just, as we're talking here, I'm pulling up some of the the dates for some of the songs. And I mean, we're now talking, I can't believe it. It's dating all of us, I suppose, but go for a soda's like 35 years old now, which I just find unbelievable. And patio <laughs> lanterns, we uh, all we are, all those. When you, you've heard those songs probably a trillion times or had to play them a trillion times over the years, when you hear them, those recordings, do you listen and go, you know what, I nailed it? Or are you the guy that listens and goes, man, I wish I'd changed that riff there or changed that lyric? Or are, are you someone who's a perfectionist and always finds something you wish you'd done differently? Or are you totally satisfied with what you put on tape?
5: Um, both. I, I, will, I will answer it by this. recording a song like go for soda or any one of them it was a moment that happened you did it you turn and you move forward and you don't look back it was quincy jones told my producer that once he said so we're both thriller and all i says, we wrote that stuff and we moved on we didn't you never look back at at what you've done and go oh i wish i'd done this you did it you did your best you got it to as good as it could be and bang off to the next one
0: it is, uh, this has been a great surprise. Did not know Kim Mitchell was going to be joining us, uh, but we were talking about Kim Mitchell being inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. Long overdue. Kim, thanks so much for doing this. Now we got to get you into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame where you belong as well. But really appreciate oh, the time you, today. Thanks for doing this. Well,
4: th- thank you. Thanks for having me on. Nice to hear from you too, Eric. <laughs> I didn't even get to answer the question about harmonium, so next time
0: next time, but that is Eric, so we started this with Eric Alper, that's the other voice you're hearing who's a music publicist, and look, Eric, thanks for making that happen, I that was a, that was an amazing unexpected surprise today, so thanks for doing this
4: happy to do it, man, anything for CHML and you, you know that,
0: there we go, thanks so much guys The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML Oh, this is the Scott
1: Thompson podcast available on Apple podcast and Google podcast or wherever you get yours.
4: And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson and thanks for listening.